and welcome to Posting Up, the Washington Post NBA podcast. I'm Tim Bontemps, National NBA writer for the Washington Post. And joining me today, I'm very happy to say, is my friend Kevin Arnovitz, the very talented writer and thinker on the NBA for ESPN.com. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Now, after the news that Bill Kennedy came out as a um, openly gay man yesterday in a story with Yahoo Sports, and combined with uh, the announcement or the you know the reporting that Rajon Rondo had uttered some homophobic slurs towards him um, in their confrontation in Mexico City a couple weeks back, you were the first person that I thought of. Not only because you're a you're very articulate and smart and uh, thoughtful person, but also because you're a, a openly gay man and you've written very extensively and artfully on the subject in uh, past situations, including, I think, having a really revealing sit down um, with Joakim Noah um, when he was in a not the same situation, but a similar one a few years ago. So I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this because I think it's a really important subject. And I think that it's something that people need to discuss more than maybe we do instead of just saying, oh, this is terrible and we should just move on. So um, I, I know it's I know it's probably not the most fun subject for you to have to cover, but it, it, uh, it means a lot to you to come on and talk about it. So thank you. My pleasure. So I guess first I would just like to start with um, when you when you first heard about this, um, what was your reaction to it? That it hadn't been a while that, you know, that, that, that this is it's one of these things. And there was a spat of them in 2011 because you had Kobe and Joakim Noah sort of in, in, the, in the same year, close to one another. And you didn't have the Collins news for a while, but that it, you know it has been a while, and uh, it offers no reassurance that okay we're back on schedule, but just that um, you know I, I don't think there's any surprise anymore. Uh, in some ways, I guess I'm, I'm gonna kind of popularize, you know, the, the Greg Popovich quote from last night. Like, I, like I'm, you're not surprised, and I don't say that with any sense of victimology. Like, well, of course the world's homophobic. It's just um, there are X number of competitors and X number of games and X number of triggers that would maybe push someone to irrational behavior and, and speech on the floor. And um, so it, it only the probability suggests it's going to happen. No, I, I think that's true. And, I mean, look. I, this is a word. I mean, one of my colleagues called me yesterday because he was putting together a story on it, and he was asking me about, you know, we we're discussing the word and stuff. And frankly, it's not a word that I even have heard since I was in middle school, maybe, or high school. Right. Like, it's just not, it's not something I ever, if I ever heard anybody say it, I would visibly recoil, and it's just not something that comes up. But um, I also don't have any, you know, other than being a friend of someone like you, I don't have a... Um, who would have a visceral reaction to it in uh, a personal sense, I don't have any connection to it. I don't have anyone in my right. family who's, um, uh, who's gay or anything. So what, what is your reaction when you, when you hear that word yourself, personally? I mean, so, I mean, let's just say what the word is. I'm not someone who feels like we have to be okay. censorious about it. I mean, it's, it's language, right? right? So the word is faggot. And, you know, faggot is, is a member of a collection of words that from an early age, um, sort of collection of slurs that... You know, unfortunately, we learn probably at a too early of an age as, as being sort of that, that collection of, of hurtful epithets. And, and some of them are race-based, and some of them are, are religious bigotry, and some of them are sexist. Um, you know, the difference between faggot and those other words, in my opinion, is that, you know, you get called one of those other words on the, on the, on the playground. It is brutal. It is hurtful. Um, it is hateful. And then you go home, and, you know, if you're, if you're fortunate, you have a family member, a, a 
a mentor, a, a religious leader, or someone who tells you, hey, look, you know, don't let that bother you. You have nothing to be ashamed of. You know, you are a young, proud young woman, or you're or a proud young Latino, or, or, or you're, you're, you're a proud young black man. The difference with faggot is you come home and, you know, it, it's not like you have nothing to be ashamed of. You're a proud gay boy. Like, you're just... It doesn't exist. So the word for most of your evolution and your maturation as a kid, it's just there's no there's no upside there. I mean, someone called you gay, and 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 there's no pride associated with that protected class. There is nothing prideful about being gay when you were 11 years old, 12 years old, or 10, or 14, or 15. And so I think, well, I'm not somebody who revels in identity politics. I, I kind of this is not where I live, and but I, I will say that. You know, when, when, when certain folks get annoyed that, like, oh, you have to teach kids now, you have to affirm uh, the gay lifestyle, it's not, the answer is, is it's not really about that. You're, you're trying to create the conditions where, you know, when and if that <laughs> a slur like that is, is, is leveled at a kid, that he doesn't have to wait till he goes off to college or gets in the adult world or is fortunate enough to, you know, move to a place that's accepting to realize, like, okay, just as an association of identity, faggot is not something, you know, um, you know, if you are gay, that, that you know, you can be, you know, prideful of your identity. Um, but, but I think that's why that word's a little different. And, and so viscerally, when you hear it as a gay man, um, it, 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 if it's not hurtful, then it at least conjure up some memories of hurt. I mean, I think you get to a certain point, at least I'm, I'm fortunate that I have, where, I, I mean, I, I, I can't recall being called it recently, and, you know, I don't know how I'd react if I did in sort of a context like Rondo. I'm not sure. Right. No, I, I mean, I, I don't even, I'm sure you wouldn't. I mean, I don't know how most people would. And I, I give, I mean, I give Bill Kennedy an, an, an immense lot of credit because, you know, if, if I was in his situation and someone had, had said something to me of, of that manner, I probably wouldn't have been able to just walk away and stand in the corner and just try to distance myself as much as possible. So, I mean, I, I think that's a pretty impressive um, reaction from him, even if it is, you know, technically what he's supposed to do in his job. Cause I, I think a lot of us in that situation probably wouldn't have been able to do the same thing. Now, a lot, there's been a lot of discussion about the penalty that Rajon Rondo got. He got suspended for one game. Um, some people have said that's not enough. Um, I, I'm just curious if if you had been Adam Silver in this situation, what what do you think the proper punishment would be? You know, it's tough in general. I'm not a big fan of let's make an the the let's make an example out of him school of jurisprudence. It, it's just not you know, it, it's not my predisposition. I think the league's hands were kind of tied in this sense at the time the process was being adjudicated. Bill Kennedy wasn't an openly gay man. So, all right, so, so what precedent do we have here? Well, Kobe called a ref a faggot in 2011, got fined $100,000. Um, I don't believe there was a suspension. So, um, no, I think you, know, this you is can the go first that time, I think this is the first time anyone's ever been suspended for language, right? Right. And now I, I think now there's this also added thing, which is, is it the, the, the stalking of it was also very, you know, disconcerting. Like, for, forgetting just what he said there was an aggressiveness to Rondo that you want to discourage if you're the league. Um, now, can you do this sort of identity-based extra penalty, almost, if you will, a hate crime sort of, you know, an add-on? Um, and, and in that sense, does he get two games? Does he get three games? I mean, I don't, again, I mean, so I'm, 
I have, I have two things. One is, I, again, I'm not a big fan of making an example out of someone. This is a unionized league. And so if the overall purpose is this is a teaching moment, what I don't want to do is just start adjudicating it arbitrarily in, in so far as this. I don't want to get a situation where Michelle Roberts and people who might be natural allies would say, five games? Are you kidding me? Look, we're, we're, we're with you on this issue. But listen, you know, like this, this, you know, this labor contract is, is collectively bargained, and you can't just unleash you know, penalties because it makes you feel better. Like, let, let's find something that's proportional, and, and we're not going to introduce these extra variables. Um, so, I mean, would I have gone further than a game? Maybe, probably, maybe two, maybe three. But I also don't like the fact that we get caught up in this sort of debate over penalty instead of talking about what I think we should really be talking about here, which is sort of the essence of what happened and why it happened and what conditions contribute to it happening. And so that's sort of, if that, if that sounds like a cop-out, perhaps it is. I, I just, you know, the penalty portion and the adjudication of it all just doesn't interest me as much. I mean, the good news is we live in an era of social media. I mean, Rondo has pinned pillory today by on on this out uh, outlet on uh, on numerous other platforms. Uh, places that never talk about basketball have kind of gone cross cultural today, and and Rondo's sort of been absorbed into the larger culture, you know. And so there is this sort of collective judgment um, that happens, and and I think in certain doses that's a really good thing. Um, but I also don't want I don't like when the adjudication of the process becomes the conversation rather than, hey, it's 2015. Why is it in one of the most prominent workplaces in America? <laughs> is, this, is this behavior that someone who, who's been in the league for many years would even think would even be approaching acceptable? And I think that's the bigger question. No, I totally agree. And I think I think to your point, Kevin, it's it's easy for people to get mad about a punishment, right? It's a lot harder to have a hard, frank conversation about what what is important here, right? Like what why is this like you said, why is this happening? Why has this happened before? Why does this continue to happen in this sport, in this situation? Not that it happens every day, but it's happened enough where you would think people would be saying, "All right, well, why is why did he decide that was the word he had to use? Like, why why did, was that the situation he had to go to go to that to? Why, you know, what what made him think that that was acceptable as opposed to, oh, well, you know, he should have gotten an extra three games. I mean, it's a lot easier to have that conversation. Oh, yeah, he should have gotten punished for uh, doing that uh, in a harsher way than he did, um, as opposed to, like you said, really examining the situation because that's uncomfortable and it and it's awkward and people." You know, people don't like that very much. Now, along those lines, um, I, I, I was really struck yesterday. I mean, like I said, I, I wanted to have you on from the moment I heard about this. And then I, I was reading through your tweets yesterday, and one really struck me, which was that you you said that you felt a more visceral reaction to this moment than you did both when um, Kobe Bryant used the word towards uh, Bernie Adams and when... Uh, Joakim did towards a fan and I was just curious was that because of the fact that it was why the person it was directed towards or was it something else about the situation that made you feel that way no I think it was because there was intent there because there's a context that matters um uh, you know I don't have any acceptance of the term being used generically the way Joakim Noah did or perhaps Kobe where you come up with the the, the the most 
a vicious school yard barb, which is faggot, and you unleash it, uh, irrespective of what you think the person's sexuality may or may not be. Uh, it implies a certain, it, it intends to emasculate, and that's what it does, And uh, but but in quite a generic sense, which I, I don't know, I don't want to say makes it not as bad, but to me, you know, watching it, it it's very clear. Um, I, you can't get inside to Rondo's head 100%, but it, it's very clear to me that this was like he had a target it was intended toward, and 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 he hit that target. To borrow, I think, from Wes Morris, my friend, he said, you know, this was hate that hit its target, and uh, and he's right. So I mean, that that was essentially what I was saying, is that uh, I, I have no doubt that that Rondo, you know, saw a vulnerability in what he knew about Bill Kennedy, which is this man as a referee, and he's also a gay man, and you know, I, I'm going to make him pay for that. Right, like he—he's going to pay for being gay, and this is how he's going to pay. I'm going to say this thing, um, you know, you know, with the superlative, and and that's so so viscerally, yeah, it, it hurts more. Like you know, like Kobe, Joakim, like they would have hurled that at anybody. With Rondo, it was very specific. Like he was out to get a gay man, um, on a very visceral level, and that's what he did. No, that was that was what I figured, but I, I wanted to I wanted to make sure that you had the chance to articulate that because that's what I didn't want to assume anything. But um, I I went back and read your uh, really brilliant sit down with Joakim Noah um, a few years ago when this happened. I think it was the 2011 playoffs, right? Uh, in Miami. That's correct. Right. Okay. Yeah, Miami so, Chicago Conference Finals. Right. Um, and I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you about it. Um, because I, I thought it was a fascinating interview. Because uh, you, the thing that struck me about it was, and and you should go back and if you search for this, you can find it on the internet. Anyone listening to this should definitely go go read it because it, it's a very, you know, it's a very frank interview and it, it's very revealing. I think. And the the thing that I took from it was, you know, Joakim Noah basically just kept saying over and over again, "I'm I'm very sorry I said this. It's not who I am." And a few different times, you you kind of said to him, "Well, Joakim, then who are you?" And he didn't really have an answer, and I'm not. I'm not trying to to make out Joakim as someone who um, hates gays or anything. I I don't think that's true. But I just thought it was a very interesting interview, and I was I just wanted you to kind of yeah. talk about it. Well, in, in defense of of Joakim, like it's a pretty existential question. Like, who are you? And, and right, I had to get to one point. True. He says, "Well, what do you mean, who I am?" And I'm like, you know, in the larger context of the league, I think I say, like, you know, like, like who are you? And and it was kind of, it was very interesting because, you know, Joe Keem, I think he went to like literally the United Nations school. I mean, here's a guy who grew up in Soho. Um, his mother's an artist and her best friend, uh, you know, in, in some ways it sounds like his mom was in, in, in sort of the, the, the crude parlance of our times, kind of a fag hag, which is, you know, what we, what we would say um, tongue in cheek. I had a lot of gay male friends. She was, she existed in a very, artistic, literary, uh, Manhattan downtown community. Uh, her best friend was Nuriyev's partner. I mean, Rudolf Nuriyev is, is one of the most talented ballet dancers of the 20th century, and this guy is hanging around like a young Joachim. So what was heartbreaking to me about the Noah situation was, I think when we all cover this league, you know, after a certain moment you, you or a certain time, you realize that, like, you know, there, there's certain guys who kind of, you know, that you, you, you're, you're culturally simpatico with. Right, 
Like, you know, the guys in the league in the locker room before the game or after the game or at practice or shoot around, you feel like, um, you know, and as a gay man, uh, you know, it's something I bring in to work every single day. I mean, it's, it's always there, but you know, I'm often thinking like, you know, there are certain guys in the league I've established relationships with players, coaches, and execs where that part of my identity is just, it's, it's as present as it is in a conversation with you. And, you know, Noah's one of those guys where like he's, I mean, he grew up in the most cosmopolitan environment you could possibly. If there's going to be one guy who's gay positive in the NBA, it's going to be Joe Noah, right? Like, like, like. I think he called his his mom's best friend, who was an artist, you know, who was Nuria's partner, mom. I think that was his nickname. Yeah, no, like, that, that definitely around that the definitely house. came up. In, so in that's the, what was sort of crushing about Noah's incident was a two. Even you, man, like you of 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 Soho, Manhattan, you of the United Nations School, you of this sort of pan global childhood and existence, a father that's from Cameroon and a tennis player, a mother who is an artist and European, um, you who's hanging around with, with, you know, older gay men just kind of hanging around your house, like, and you go with faggot, like, ah, you know, we, we really have a long kind of hill to climb here. So, um, I mean, that was sort of what was interesting about, about the joke you know him, but not who I am was interesting is Rondo just released a real apology following his non-apology yesterday. And I think he actually has the words, and it's not in front of me, is uh, that is not who I am. It's actually in his new apology. And so what I think, you know, the statement I'm getting from these athletes is that there's this sort of this thing that snaps, right? Like they disassociate themselves from this speech. Like what happens on the court is somehow not necessarily an expression of their personhood, but sort of this werewolf that you turn into for two and a half hours when you're out there competing that you would never unleash in regular life or even a practice um, availability, that this is something that just is not who I am, that, that when I'm out there and I'm doing this and I'm in the heat of the moment, I'm sort of disassociated from my true feelings. And it's just a question of whether or not you believe these people. Yeah, I don't know. I always have trouble with that. I mean, if, I'd almost feel better if somebody said, I just lost my mind and said one thing and I'm sorry. Like, the, the, the you know, the this is not who I am thing. Like, and, it, and I just looked up Rondo's statement today, which is an actual apology, as opposed to yesterday when he basically just said, yeah, I got mad. Tough luck. And, you know, right. so at least at least they made him come back and apologize today, even though he should have just done it immediately yesterday. Um, but, yeah, he said that in there, too. And I, I've just I don't know. I, I always have an issue with that just because I'm not saying that, you know, anybody who makes a mistake should be condemned forever. I mean, that's certainly not the point. But um you would think if you're going to put yourself in the, if you're going to be in that situation, I would just rather you just own up to it. But you, you struck on, you struck on something interesting um, when you were talking about Joakim and obviously he is a very, you know, he comes from a a very unique background, um, especially for NBA players. Um, But the thing, the kind of the common theme that unites the three guys over the last few years that have gotten caught up in, in uh, these situations by using, using this word are Kobe Bryant, Joakim Noah and Rajon Rondo, who they're all really smart. They're all really smart. They're all they're They're all all really smart, really smart, really interesting, culturally diverse people. And I I just I don't know. I just I was wondering. I I mean, I don't know. I'm not. I might just be a random. Can I let let, let me? And I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play armchair psychologist here. And maybe I'm I'm sort of, you know, going above my pay grade. But is it because they're smart? I mean, is it? You know, in Rondo's case, meaning, is it, you know, he wanted to find the most hurtful thing he could say to 
I don't want to say smart. I, I, it's like, uh, there's a certain resourcefulness here. Like, you really want to cut at a person? You know, how are you going to do that? Um, like, I don't, when I, and I say that, like, it's an it's a inordinately stupid thing to say. But if your calculus at that point in time is, let me kind of gather my resources here and come up with the most single most humiliating. Like, my goal here is to, <laughs> to emasculate this person. Well, I'm going to come up with the most effective way to do that. Um, I mean, and, you know, again, it's sort of part of the heartbreak of Joaquin, right? Like, it's the same thing with Kobe, who, you know, look, Kobe's a different show on a different day. I mean, he's a different dissertation, probably a college course at this point. Um, you know, but, but Rondo is, is, is that right? Like, you, you want to think this is only the purview of, of, of the dumbest jocks who would say such a thing. But it's not. Like, it's sort of, it's embedded there. And in, and in some ways, I guess, if someone says, well, what would you want? Three games, five games? Like, I don't want anything like that. I don't care about the games. I really don't care about the suspension. I mean, I do. There needs to, the league needs to send a message, of course. And um, but man, it would just be great if Rajon Rondo, bright guy that he is, like I don't know. And you can't mandate this. I, I would just I don't think I'd love to see him hold a press like a I don't know. This is this is the this is the weird part of who I am. I just I'd love to hear 15 minutes of Frank talk about it. Like the conversation you and I are having, or the conversation I've been able to have off the record with one or two players. They really get into this. Well, don't, wouldn't that help uh, a lot like, more, of, Kevin? Like, wouldn't that help a lot more, like, though? Really? Like, that would... open? Wouldn't that just be great? Right. Like Rondo's saying, all right, here's here's where I was at that moment. Here's what I, you know, here's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, it was inordinately stupid. I'm trying to get to the root of what, you know, kind of what prompted me to go there. It's a kind of a dark place, you know. In terms of frames of reference, I don't really have any. I grew up in Louisville. Maybe I knew gay people. Maybe I didn't. It would just be a really great thing. And kind of that's what I want. I'll never get it. You can't mandate thoughtfulness. But wow, thoughtfulness would be really cool. Just a frank conversation. Well, that's what I was saying before. When you get back to these people who get worked up about punishment, right? Like, okay, this happens and everybody goes, wow, Rondo needs to get 10 games or Rondo needs to get fined a million dollars or Rondo, you know, this and this and this. But if Rondo just sat and talked about this for 20 minutes, that would be more important than any punishment you could give anybody. If there was just Meanwhile, for Rondo, it mandating a 20 minute press conference is probably he'd probably take the like ronda would probably take the five games right over having to do a 20 minute open press conference oh, I mean, that's the funny thing for him it would be far far more excruciating oh yeah that would be a way bigger punishment for him but i think to your point i think that would be a much more important thing for the league um and if and for just society in general to have you know instead of just running and hiding behind these dog whistle arguments about um oh you know you know the, whether the, the use of the wor- of words like this or um, the punishment in this situation or the intent or any of that garbage. I mean, it would just be way more, you know, way more beneficial for this to just be openly discussed and hashed out. And, you know, maybe if that happened, maybe somebody would think twice before they said it the next time. I mean, maybe well, somebody yeah, will I think mean... twice now, but it, I just feel like if we just had a real discussion about this kind of stuff, it would make a much bigger impact than arguing over how many games you should get. I mean, look, the, the prescription is twofold. And then we, you know, one is, I mean, a number one, and there's no way to correct this immediately. And there's just no way to do it. You, you sort of have to, I think, create a climate of, of acceptance is there's just not enough gay people around the game. Like, like the number one indicator of whether a person is enlightened on this subject or not 
is, and, and Pew Research did a poll a few years ago, I think Gallup's done something similar, which is, do you know a gay person? Are you a family member of a gay person? Do you work with a gay person? Like, like by and large, people who do now have a frame of reference. And in, in, in so far as the NBA, we're talking about a really small collection of people. And I'm not just talking, forget the players. I mean, coaches, trainers, people working the communication staffs, um, There's less than 1,500 people sales, that work community in the whole relations. League. There's less than 1,500 people right. that work I mean, in the you're, whole You're league. talking about Rick Welts. You're talking about Bill Kennedy now. Um, I know a handful of closeted people in various staffs around the league, uh, non-basketball ops. Just, but by and large, you, know, you have a couple of reporters and people who are actually you know, at, you know, at the games on a regular basis. And, you know, I mean, that's it. And, and so now, I, I, does there need to be a league-wide initiative? I mean, I don't know. And one could argue, actually, if that's precisely the reason you do need to punish Rondo because every time a Rajon Rondo says what he says, there's somebody who's – closeted in PR who's less likely to come out um, because the environment's hostile. But, and it's not something, again, you can legislate. I mean, you can, I don't know that you can mandate that 30 teams each hire one gay staffer or a gay trainer um, or somebody who would associate with the players on a regular basis. Um, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know how you do that, but it's just, I, to me, if someone said, well, what would you change? It's like, well, if I could, I, I there would be a, you know, more gay people in basketball and professional basketball, professional sports. I mean, the second thing though, is forgetting that is this is a workplace. And I think one of the problems with sports in general, professional sports is it sort of abides by this general law of exceptionalism that yes, it's a workplace, Kevin, but you know, it's a different kind of workplace. It's not like your workplace. You know, where else do players get undressed around one another? And, and my doesn't happen in my office and, and, and where else do they, you know, you know, they're together every single day. They're practically living together and, and they're competing. And, and, you know, and, and, you know, Hollywood went through this about 15, 20 years ago. Like when I moved out to Los Angeles and, you know, it was like a temp in a mailroom at one of the big five agencies, like, like it was still a time where behavior in an, a place like that, like what an agent could say to his second assistant or his first assistant, like in front of everybody else was unbelievable. Like, if I look back at – we're not talking about 40 years ago. We're talking about, like, less than 20 years ago. Like, like you would hear the stories of, oh, that young studio chief who got, you know, a blowjob um, at his holiday party out in the open. And like, and, like, people would trade these stories around. And this is – by the way, this is a liberal community, right? This is Los Angeles. This is, you know, these are blue voters, i got to tell you. Like, this is not some right. good old boy network. Um, and Hollywood, you know, well, people have been doing that for years in Hollywood. You sleep your way to the top. That's the oldest thing in the book. And there was this notion that somehow, like, the Hollywood workplace wasn't subject to the same rules that govern HR at your company or my company or an accounting firm or, or, or a school. And then, you know, it, slowly and surely it's happened. Sports hasn't really gotten there yet, right? Like, like there's still this understanding that there are things that you're allowed to do in this office that you wouldn't be allowed to do in our office. And one of them is it's just to kind of talk the way guys talk about gay people or, or, or anything else. But, I, you know, I think so in some ways this is a workplace issue, and it's just a point where, you know, I, I remember talking to a head coach um, a few years ago. And I was asking him, I'm like, you know, so, like, talk, talk me through a two-hour practice or an hour-and-a-half practice. Like, like, how many things would I recoil at just as sort of an, uh, as a gay man? He's like, oh, maybe not every practice, but it's pretty regular. 
And, you know, just you wouldn't believe it, Kevin. And, and I said, well, do you ever police it? And he's like, look, man, I got so many battles to fight with my players. I want them to get to bed early the night before a game. So when I got to fight that battle, I got to fight this one and that one and the egos, you know. And, and look, I'm not in that coach's position. I'm not going to say that he has a responsibility to, you know, to lay down the law. But I do, you know, though I do suspect there are certain coaches in the league that if they did lay down the law and said, look, guys, this season we're trying something else, you know. Um, you know, we, we've done a crappy job of this, and I know it's going to be pain in the ass. And you're not going to get fined. You're going to get dropped. But I just don't want to hear it anymore. Well, I don't want like, to assume anything. No longer, like you're, hey, and I know you did it growing up as an amateur, and I know every schoolyard, every high school, I even know in college. But here's the thing: we now get paychecks to play the game, which means we're professionals. And as professionals, we have to submit to certain trappings of the professional kind of workplace code. And one of those is there's certain stuff that's inappropriate, and yep. we can't do it. And like, and so how many coaches are saying that I'm not for some, it's not a crusade that there needs to be, you know, but it, it, and I think the league is doing much better at that. Like there are orientations. I mean, Jason Collins, who's done incredible work in this space is, is, is making the rounds. And, and I think the fact that he played, of course, has currency. Um, but you know, what's interesting going back to the first one of, you know, diversity, like I would just venture to guess, and it's not just because of the San Antonio Spurs. But are there more or fewer incidents of kind of raw and crude sexism in San Antonio Spurs practices today than there were a year ago? Oh, what would you say? I'm sure there's less. Why? Um, well, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I wasn't going to assume anything uh, too broadly, but being being here yesterday and right. knowing knowing how Greg Popovich basically controls every second of every day for every player here, when he... I mean, there are there's basically no other person in the league who would say what he did about another team's player than what he said last night. And it's not, and it's I mean, not that he, a... it's not that he said anything, um, you know, unbelievably dramatic or anything. He just was he just spoke like a normal human being and said, you know, this isn't a surprise that I heard this, and you know what, it's a joke. This shouldn't happen. It's disgusting and terrible. And I think the I would imagine, and I, again, I'm not in their practices, but I would think that in Spurs practices, that kind of stuff isn't tolerated because of the way they well, run Well, also, because you have Becky Hammond. Oh, and see that, of there, course. There's, I didn't even You know, to me, that. like, right. like, I'm just going to make, I'm going to make an assumption. It's not reported, <laughs> but I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make a very safe assumption that any incidences of, of sexism, um, you know, in, in various languages, which you've all been privy to in any competition. I mean, you know, are probably less prevalent. Oh, totally. Like, I did, my I guess totally is, is if like, you had a gay assistant coach or a development guy, like my guess is you'd pretty quickly People think find, twice. There would be no comments like that. At right. the, in the, like there's just not like, – like I, I used to play in a poker game the first um, – way when I first moved here in the late 90s. And like there was a night where like I was the new guy and, and like, you know, some guy, you know, sucked out on some other guy on the river or whatever and – and it was you faggot, and and then like the host who knew me he was like guys, 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 and I sort of you know I just like whatever. And this, this, this is the like what's actually you know straight guys like like what's far worse than hearing like facts. Someone guy call another guy faggot. It's not having to like be like the guy that the everybody's awkward, worried the about. The awkward apology. Like, and like oh, it's just so awesome. I go into the kitchen and like so the 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 instigator. Like who, by the way, totally good guy. Like, like, and this is 1999 or something. I don't even remember. But uh, he's like, yeah, man, listen, I, I just want to let you know. Like, and it was just like <laughs> there was a part of me that was kind of like 
had a morbid fascination with his just terror. And, and then part of me that had a genuine empathy, like, like he felt really bad about it. Like he felt legitimately bad about it. You know, it was, it was a Joakim Noah in the moment. Um, but the funny thing is, is you know, I played in that game for a couple of years. They moved further east um, in town. And like, my guess is I don't, I don't recall one thing that even approached it. And like, so like my, and I'm no hero. Like, yes, I, Kevin Ornovitz, like integrating poker games everywhere. Um, (laughs) you know, like, no, but the point is, is my sheer presence, like by virtue of just showing up, like completely changed the culture of this kind of piggish poker game. And that guy probably didn't say something like that again. Right. And I, and I don't think it was like in deference to me, it just changed. It literally changed the culture. Like it just, it, it, just over like my sheer presence. And again, like no act of heroism for me other than somehow making the drive to this apartment and going to the game. Well, you are in LA. So driving, driving is a driving is a, yeah, this was a heroic endeavor trying to find parking on Roxbury and in Beverly Hills where (laughs) the kid lived. But, um, anyway, I think that's kind of the thing. And so there's no really way to mandate it, but you know, man, I wish that some of the closeted people in the NBA would come out. I don't mean players exclusively. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, I just think that, like my experience in life says that like visibility is sort of the antidote um, to invisibility. And right now the reason this happens is because it can, because like, like, like who they're not, they're, there's gays are almost spoken as if they're not even in the room. And the reason they aren't, because they're not in the room like openly. And, and that to me, and there's no way you can mandate that. You can't tell a team, Oh, you got to hire a gay trainer. Um, but I, I just think that, that that would be the best antidote. And then one would argue, well, you need to reprimand Rajan Rondo in order to create the climate where somebody would, would feel safe coming. I mean, that's the thing that hurts most about the Rondo thing is I just think to myself, like, oh, man, there, there, there are people now who are eight months away from coming out who are now lined back the clock to being 24 months away because it just doesn't seem like something like, do you want that to happen to you in the office? Like you're in the community relations office for the NBA team and you have to like, go convince a player to come with you to do a pottery class at the community center or whatever, you know, like, like, and now you're worried that what, he's going to unleash that on me. Cause like, you know, he doesn't want to be bothered and, and I'm this gay man and I'm 24 years old and now I have to, you know, like, like and players are temperamental. And so I think that's kind of the great fear is, is that a climate like this makes a guy or a woman for that matter, less likely to come out. No, I agree. And look, I, I grew up in, in uh, a little farm town in western New York State, about an hour south of Buffalo. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of diversity there. You know, I went to I went to high school with a kid who came out later. And I think there was a, a younger kid and was friends with my sister who came out later. But, you know, it, it was this little tiny farm town in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, there wasn't you, you didn't get exposed to a lot. And, you know, I moved to New York City to after college to work, and you're suddenly around every possible culture in the world, whether it's you know different religions, different races, different um, I have different backgrounds of all kinds. And you, not that I mean, I I when I was raised properly, so I didn't speak like that anyway. But um, you, you just get a different appreciation for people when you get a chance to be around them, and you and you. You know, not that you need to know that they are no different than you anyway, but I think for a lot of people, like you said, like that poker game is a great example, right? You go to that poker game, somebody says one thing, and probably they probably never say something like that ever again because any time that might come to the front of their mind, they think, oh, well, you know what? I said that, and that hurt somebody. 
And so yeah. I'm not going to do it. And it's just like you said, it it would be really sad if somebody was thinking about coming out this week or coming out next week or next month or in six months. And yeah. they saw this incident and they said, oh, man, I don't want to deal with this. Like, I got to wait. Yeah. And I, I do want to make one point because I think it gets lost. I mean, um, I'm a big free expression guy and, and certain cultural debates. I find myself in odd places um, with people I, I wouldn't otherwise be. And I, I think it's an important thing. But to those who would say, like, well, now you're, poli- you know, so basically you want to police the speech at poker games and this, that, and the other or practice. And the answer is no, I don't want to police it. I, I don't want there to be a, I don't want, it doesn't need to be, a, doesn't need to be a legal process. It doesn't need to be an edict or a decree that you can say this and you can't say that. I just, I mean, I just think it's useful. Like, like if the goal is like, like we know in terms of performance, in terms of like collective happiness, that like a happy workplace, like if, if people are happy at work, the product is better. Like that's fact. That's not up with people. That's not a little motto on the wall um, in the break room. Like that's actually like university studies. I mean, there, there are people who have studied, you know, who study happiness now. I mean, there are economists who do. I mean, there, there are people who like who study theories of management and it's just understood that like, okay, you know, like it, and it's totally common sense, right? I mean, if you, if you're, the office is populated by people who are happy and feel good about the work and good about each other, like the product's better. I think we see that every night in the NBA. I mean, we're in these offices. Um, so like, don't do it because not, you know, don't conform to these rules because the speech police tell you, Forget this. It's not about that. It, it, I mean, the reason you encourage, like, being sensitive about speech in this particular instance is because it will actually improve the product. It will, like, and, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence the Spurs are the Spurs or are the Warriors are the Warriors in, in their respect. Like, 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 the workplace culture matters. So do it not in service of some notion of policing speech. Do it because... Like the reason to have the reason to have certain tacit understandings of what acceptable speech is is because it just creates a better work environment, therefore a better work product. And like it's it's really an, it's 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 not a it's not it's not censorious. It's actually utilitarian. Like it's just it's just, it's just useful for people not to say faggot in the office. Like it's just useful. It is not a useful thing. Um, like there, there's no principle to protect there that is greater than. Oh, making the product better. Anyway, that's the sort of my, my counter to those who are invariably like, oh, you, you, so you want to police speech at practice now? Yeah, no, I don't want to police speech. I want to encourage really good habits and like smart workplace habits. It's not anyway. encouraging. It's not, encur- it's not discouraging free speech to, to want people to act like respectable, decent human beings. I mean, it's not this isn't this isn't telling somebody they can't talk about whether they want to vote for Donald Trump or not at practice. This is saying something that's incredibly offensive and hurtful to someone that might go home and, you know, just be upset about it for days. Like it's not it's not a it's not just, oh, well, yeah, I want to vote for Trump or I want to vote for Obama or, you know, I I think that, you know, we should have a free market economy. I mean, that it's it's just it's dumb for anybody to say otherwise. I mean, that it's it you know, it's it that kind of that kind of stuff it that all that conflating goes back to the um, the stuff we were talking about before about people getting worked up about punishments and things. It, it, it misses the broader point, which is. The point is should be for people to just act like decent human beings. Because guess what? If everyone acts like a decent human being, everyone's going to be pretty happy. 
And there really shouldn't be, to your point, about workplace happiness and just be people wanting to get along and have an, an easier and happier life in general. It really, it really shouldn't be a, a, um, it shouldn't be hard to say to someone, hey, you know what? It'd probably be nicer for everyone if you didn't say offensive things to people. I mean, it's really, it, it it's just a, it, it just is, it shouldn't even be a debate. I mean, anybody who brings up that just totally is missing missing the point for me. Um, but I, I wanted I wanted to ask you the NBA. Um, I covered the Nets when Jason Collins came out a couple of years ago. Um, I, I think on in the main, I at least think that the league has done a pretty good job in this um, marketplace or not marketplace in this um, forum in terms of trying to promote diversity and promoting um, inclusiveness, at least from my standpoint. But um, you obviously have a different perspective than me, so I would be curious to know what you think about the way that the league on the in the main has um has has been about you know this topic and just trying to be more inclusive in general i mean i think the league does generally a good job and those i know who work across several sports and who cover multiple sports say the league does the best job um i think the nhl does a pretty decent job too um they've done work with the organization etc i mean again i think it goes back to i mean there's only so much the league can legislate there's only so much they can decree I mean, it's going to take just sort of a generation of younger coaches and a generation of kind of younger locker room leaders who just sort of basically have this sort of intrinsic notion that there's certain stuff that's just not appropriate. Like, yeah, it's still a locker room. I mean, I, I have no, I have no pretenses. <laughs> like, like you've been there, I've been there. Like, I, you know, I have no pretenses. It's all of a sudden going to be up to HR standard. Of course, it's not. Like, and I, and I, I grant that to everyone it's it, it's it's pollyannish to assume otherwise and just frankly naive and, and and nobody wants to hear it i mean nobody but i just think that you can you can have surgical strikes and one is is like hey everything you know you don't change total behavior but but the, you know stuff about gays you know stuff that's you know whether it's you know identity-based attacks like just forget those anything else you're all right like like um i mean there can still be this you know fraternal order that you know got, that, that sort of pervade locker rooms to some extent but identity-based attacks um just don't go anymore it's over like end like we're, we're phasing those out guys and like and it just needs to come from a coaching staff and it needs to come from like the leaders you know in, in it needs to come from the leaders in the locker room and like i don't know how the league can necessarily uh, again legislate that but that's kind of just what it needs to do. I, I think the league's doing good work in this area. I really do. I mean, I, Kathy Barron's at the league office is great. Adam legitimately, Adam Silver can legitimately, I think, is concerned with these issues. Um, and the communication staff at, at the league is on top of this stuff. Like, I, I think there's you know, Kiki Vandaway, uh, very good on this stuff. So I, I think, in, by and large, they're doing a good job. I think the real heavy lifting is not necessarily something that can even come from New York. It's just going to be in 30 different locker rooms with 30 staffs and 30 collections of players. So I was going to ask what, what should happen next, but it seems like really, or where should the league should go from here, but it seems like you think that it's it's just kind of a matter of evolution of the sport and of, of, of people in general to just kind of gradually get to a point where it's this like there's just a yeah. more of an open inclusive nature to locker rooms and teams and places in general 
I mean, I, I'm just, I guess I'm showing my hand as an incrementalist. I, and I just don't, I, I wish I had some great kind of political platform. I just don't. Like, like it's getting a lot better. It had been <laughs> four years since, you know, a faggot incident, which is like an eternity in this league. You know, in the interim, we had Jason Collins. I'm concerned about some of the stuff that went on with Jason. Like, I'm concerned that, you know, there are teams that didn't give him a fair look because I've, you know, I've had conversations and I want to, you know, I'd like to get to a point where when the next player is ready to come out, there aren't coaches, general managers weighing the idea that, though, that'll be a distraction. It's not that I'm, you know, homophobic. I, I love gay people, but, you know, it's just, it's, it's a, you introduce an entirely new media exposure and element, and, and we just, you know, we, we like to keep it kind of chill here, um, which I think was, was very much the position of many executives. It was individual um, understanding and, and an appreciation of what Jason was doing, but institutional uh, resistance to the idea that oh god then, then we're going to be followed on the road for two months and and all the rest of it and you know i have a fragile locker room so but but again all the stuff that i want to see happen can't be necessarily legislated um it, what it can be is, is for the league to impress upon coaches and it's and it's kind of player leaders uh that listen we're, we're yeah, I, you know point of emphasis identity-based attacks not cool not, not in practice not in the locker room just let's phase them out you know, we're not going to necessarily have any punishment uh, meted out, you know, for anything you might say in practice, but we're just letting it be known that, you know, this is a professional league and there are workplace requirements, and this is one of them. I think that's a good place to end that part of the discussion. Now let's talk about some more fun things, uh, like the Warriors and Spurs. Um, we talked, we texted about this a little bit last night. Um, I'm in San Antonio. The Spurs uh, eradicated the Jazz from the planet last night. Um I think you know. I, I think I said to you. I've said publicly. Um, all I want to see from this season is a Warrior Spurs series. Um, you know, I'm just you know from where you sit right now. You know, 25 games into the season or so. You know, what what do you think of these two teams that to this point have been? I think head and shoulders above everybody else. I, I'm so amped for that series potentially. I mean, San Antonio will obviously have a tougher road. I, I think Oklahoma City, if they stay healthy, is going to be a handful. What's amazing about the Spurs, I've probably watched in aggregate probably 24 to 25 quarters of Spurs basketball this season. I, I haven't been a team I've watched a, a ton. Um, and you, you, you have this experience watching the Spurs where it's like the middle of the third quarter and you realize they have not made one defensive error. And oh, by the way, they've done it all without actually leaving the ground. I mean, there, there are no showy blocks there. Uh, you know, there's no gambling. By and large, like like they don't gamble as a team. I mean, there there are large stretches of the game where there are no steals recorded, but it is mechanical uh, defensively. It is and part of it is they, they they obviously there's there's margin for there's some margin for error because Kawhi Leonard is I, I there were like moments when Ron Artest in his prime had that sort of combination of strength and savvy um, and, and 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 good feet defensively, but. What Kawhi Leonard is doing on the perimeter, um, and by the way, in further inside it too. I mean, the matchups are dictating different things now. Um, but that combined with the fact that I, I think a lot of us, you know, you know watched some Portland in the last few years. Also, know that Aldridge is a really underrated, heady defensive um, presence, pick and roll, almost like a lot like Chris Bosh in that respect. I mean, just a really heady pick and roll defender. Um, Really good at making help decisions when, when when he's on you know when when he's sort of the weak backline guy. Um, and the Spurs they make no mistakes. 
like not a blown rotation, nobody overhelping, nobody underhelping, knowing like it, it is, it is telepathic communication because they talk, but I don't think they talk more than other teams. I mean, I've watched it. And like, if there's one team that might be able to devise an ad hoc or for that matter, prepared game plan for Steph Curry, like, could it be this team? Like, like, am I, I'm trying to imagine a seven game series and am I believe that they won't have like lockdown powers for at least two of those seven games. And then we can like, let the, and then Curry will have two games that are indefensible anyway. And then we'd like to let the chips fall when they may with the other three, like I've got the warriors in that series, but I'm not as confident as I was three weeks ago. No. And of course you hit on the things that I was going to hit on because that's why you're the best. Um, no, but I, I watched uh, from watching last night. Um, Gordon Hayward's a very good player. Um, the night before, they played in, in Oklahoma City. They lost in overtime. Hayward was excellent in the game. Nearly won the game with a jumper for the Jazz in the last minute. Um, but terrific player. Comes to San Antonio last night. Again, second night of a back-to-back. Understandable that they might not quite have the legs um, that they did the night before. But he had four points, shot one for five from the field, and was effectively made invisible by Kawhi Leonard. Um, just got totally swallowed up. And... You know, you mentioned LaMarcus Aldridge. Um, I, I was talking to uh, Ethan Strauss last night, who was on the podcast yesterday, and we were just texting back and forth about how remarkable it is that San Antonio has got the best defense in the league by a country mile. And, you know, the, the point I said to him was essentially the one you just made, which is that people were going crazy when they essentially swapped out Tiago Splitter for LaMarcus Aldridge, but I really don't think there's a huge difference defensively between Tiago Splitter no. and LaMarcus Aldridge. And people just assume Not at that all. LaMarcus is terrible. First of all, LaMarcus is enormous. And, like, if you combine speed with mo- – I mean, when you find size with mobility, I mean, that, that's 65% of your grade as a big man. And, like, the other 35% is head. Like, he's really smart. He's really big. He moves well. Like, you put him – you put a – you give a – that player, and he's proud. Like, like he really wants to be good, which is the other thing. Like, like it's not just oh, I this is un, this inconvenient part of my job, which is playing defense for twenty four seconds, and then I get the ball back. Yeah, like which is you know the, the thought process of many players that we like. Like, it's just it's part of the job they have to do. Like, like Lamarcus is proud. So you combine the size, you combine the mobility, you combine the brain. He's really smart, and you combine. The just desire that like he, it's more than a perfunctory part of the job, and like that guy's going to be a fantastic defender. It's what people missed about Bosch, you know, which is the guy's big, mobile, really like super smart, and you know the fourth thing came pretty instantaneously when he got in a good situation, and, and so that's the thing. I mean, like I don't think Lamar is going to get any all defensive votes, but I'm going to take a really hard look. Like I like what I see a lot. I, it's a really good defensive big man there, um, to the point where. You know, I mean, the thing is going to be is, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to when they do a little more, like in the playoffs even. I mean, there might be stretches where it's crazy as it sounds because he's, he's a genius. But, like, you know, Tim Duncan is, is sort of sitting and resting where LaMarcus is going to – and he's already doing it a little bit, but, like, basically doing something that in Portland he kind of just had as a cardinal rule he just did not want to do, which is going to be the five-man. I mean, the year with J.J. Hickson, like, was not – you know, pleasant for Lamarcus, um, and and so I mean, that's what's going to be really interesting. I, I love the Spurs. I mean, I've always liked them. I've always had a, been one of those people. But like, just I, I didn't think the defense would be this this good. And it's just it's a it's a testimony to just roster building, and it's I, I'm I'm curious to see how it sustains itself. And I think it's going to be fine. Like I I, I think there's uncommon depth there this time. 
as well. No, it's it, they're an amazing situation. And, and in talking, I came down here to do a few different pieces, and one of them was to, to basically write the, you know, here come the Spurs, you know, while the, the Warriors are just blowing by everyone. And, of course, the, the Spurs managed to win last night by 30-something and passed the Warriors in point differential per game and, and made my life very simple. But in, in talking to everybody here... Isn't I mean, that always nice when you're on the road? It's the best. It's really the best when your narrative just is given to you without even having to work. It makes, it makes life, life conforms to your outline. It's just Man, that's fun. That was I had a permanent smile on my face last night for sure. But but talking to everyone here, you know, when you you know you mentioned Lamarcus doing things here that he didn't necessarily want to do in Portland, um, specifically playing center. And the the thing about the Spurs that's so fascinating to me is everyone here just immediately does whatever Greg Popovich tells them to do at all times. There's no questioning it. There's no, well, maybe I'd rather do this. Like pretty much every other NBA team, not that players don't listen to their coach, because they do, but there's certainly a lot more back and forth about things. And guys have input, and they want to do stuff. And here, it's just a total, all right, so listen, guys, we're doing this today. And you're either going to do this or you're not. You've had these conversations, too. Popovich has been described to me, and, and I know this now, from a, is, is collaborative. Like oh, he's legitimately right. collaborative with players, and I think that's kind of, in some ways, a lesson. I, I used to do these, um, these, these kind of, I, I call them the coach's book, where I kind of take, it was, it was based on 1984, 85, Bill James' baseball abstracts, where I just take the coach, sort of ask these binary questions, like is he a go-along, get-along guy, or is he intense? Is he somebody who prefers offensive weapons off the bench, or does he prefer the defensive stopper? And, and one of it is, is, is he the decider in capitals, or is he somebody who likes to kind of really aggregate and collect opinion? And, and as I started asking people who worked with Popovich and played with Popovich and you know, you talked to 12, 13 different people who have insights into these questions, like unanimous, I assumed he would be like, Pop is the decider, right? Like he's the decider. Um, he's one of those coaches. Um, and it turned out, no, not at all. Like in the fun ways, it was, like, I did it the same month I did D'Antoni. And it turned out D'Antoni, who has this kind of fun-loving system, is actually very autocratic, um, in, in, which is not uncommon. He's a revolutionary. Revolutionaries tend to be pretty dogmatic about things. Whereas Popovich, to a man, every single person I talked to was like, oh, man, he's a total collaborator. Like he loves in fact, he gets really pissed. You know when he gets pissed off at you? Rick Popovich gets pissed off at you if you're an assistant when you don't have an opinion. When you are, or, you, or he senses you do have an opinion, but you don't want to weigh in because you don't want to rock the boat or you don't like you're, – you're kind of – you know, you don't want to cash in that shit or you don't want to be you – know, like, no, that's what pisses him off the most is, is if, you, if, if you're somehow – you're not weighing in with your best judgment and your expertise. No, and, and that's a great point. And I, I, I wasn't really making my point correctly, so I'm glad you said that because that isn't really what it meant. More, oh, I just thought you were wrong. <laughs> but what, more what I, what I wanted, what I was trying to get across was, like when you mentioned LaMarcus being a proud guy, right? Like when you come to San Antonio, there is a certain level of expectation that is non-negotiable that you have to meet. You have to play defense. You have to fit into the group. You have to do certain things. And it's the same thing that happened in Miami, right? When you get LeBron and Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade together in Miami, yeah, there were some moments early on where they had to get used to things, but there was a level of expectation and professionalism and um, a certain degree of commitment you were supposed to give at both ends at all times. And... It took those guys a little while to get used to it, but when they got used to it, they became an unstoppable machine. 
and that and the Spurs have done it for so long that even guys like um, Lamarcus or David, you know, David West, like guys who've been other places, have been stars other places, come here, and the first thought isn't, well, we have to try to make sure that we ingratiate ourselves to them and make them feel comfortable. It's like, yeah, we want to do that, but they also need to kind of conform to us at the same time. And there's more of a, there's a lot more of a, a back and forth with that as opposed to, well, we just signed this guy. We have to make sure that everything's comfortable and he's happy and that we're doing things the way that he expects. And I think that's a big reason why this team has been able to have such a run of success that they have because from the top down, everybody knows that they're part of a bigger group. And, yes, there is some collaboration and – you know, Popovich is certainly not a guy that's going to uh, just stick to his philosophy and nothing else. I mean, you look at their team, they've completely, uh, they've gone 180 degrees from what they started winning with, which was a defensive first, um, you know, all, you know, no ball, you know, grind it out, score 75 points and win team to one that's maybe the most fun team in the league to watch, you know, maybe even more so than, than Golden State. And I think, you know, I think that I just, I'm just always amazed at the level of commitment and, um, the buy-in that they're able to get from every guy on the roster, no matter what where they come from, what culture they come from, what what level of success they come from. There's just a universal buy-in to, all right, this is definitely the thing I need to do to win. I, I, I look forward to the series, man. I, I, I wish we had pressed fast forward. That's all I really want to see. That's all year. I want to see, too. I mean, look, and I would love to see the Thunder play either of those teams. I'd love to see any one of those three three teams in the finals against the Cavs. They'd all be great series, but there's so many subplots to, to Warriors Spurs. There's so many style differences between the two teams. It would really be it would really be a fascinating um, look at things. Um, but before before I let you go, um, you you are a guy who I always rely on for um, food advice wherever I go, and I I hear that you have some advice for me on some places I should go in San Antonio. So where where are the hot spots to be? All right. Well, I'm I'm gonna go I'm gonna go breakfast because like San Antonio Mexican breakfast, like breakfast tacos in San Antonio are like like first of all there are these huge fluffy tortillas. It's like it's like the dough from a Chinese bao, like a bun. Like it is the fluffiest like flour tortilla situation you will find. And then they just stuff it with like eggs and meat and cheese. And so like I, I found two breakfast places, one of which was a Shea Serrano recommendation, which is in the southwestern part of town near the railroad track. So it's like, you know, like a 12-minute drive from downtown maybe. It's called Mendez. So you absolutely must go there. And like it's like one of these things where if I assume that like I'll, I, it's one of those like I assumed I needed like seven or eight dollars or nine dollars worth of breakfast food to be full, and like you know tacos are one of those things. Like, are they the big tacos? Do they load them on? Like, whether it's dinner, breakfast, or lunch, you sort of have to. So I like would order like nine dollars worth, and and this happened, and I got like food that was that could have fed me for a week, and like that that was Mendez, and it's this little family-owned place. It's right by the tracks. It's it looks like nothing, and, and it was a Shea Serrano recommendation, and it is, it is gold. The other one much closer to downtown, which I loved, is Reggio Cafe, R-E-G-I-O, and they're barbacoa tacos, which is like kind of that, that, that beautiful stewed meat um, were, were unbelievable. Also a great place for, um, for, for breakfast. And, uh, those, those, and I got to tell you, man, like, like San Antonio Mexican breakfast – is 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 an institution. It is it is just damn good. 
And the problem is, is if you're like me, like it's like now I got to go cover shoot around, like like uh, like like there, there, there's a there's a consumption problem kind of early in the day, but it is just so good that it's worth it. Well, I've got a few more days to be here, so that gives me a few more days to get to both of them. So I will uh, I will check them out, and hopefully any listeners that come through here will do the same because uh, I can speak from experience that Kevin's food recommendations are always outstanding. So um, that's that's the way to go. All right, well. Everyone should subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Uh, it's called Posting Up. If you search Posting Up, you'll you'll find it. Uh, hopefully, you subscribe and uh, give me some five star reviews. That would be great. Um, Kevin, this has really been awesome. Um, thank you, uh, thank you for the frank conversation about something I think needed to be discussed. So, I appreciate that. What? Where can people find you? And what? Uh, what excellent work can you plug? Um, where can people find me? Uh, they can find me. Occasionally, you can find my work at ESPN.com. It's down there somewhere. You've got to scroll down. Um, Kevin Arnabitz at Twitter. And I forgot the second question. What was the second question? Well, I, was, I think I asked where people can find you. What do you want to plug? Do you have any work coming up? I know you were do just on True Hoop TV. Um, I know you're on True Hoop TV. No, Ke- I mean, I've got, like, I think we do our own podcast on True Hoop TV that uh, I am a party to. Uh, I'm working on some other stuff. Uh, nothing eminent. Is there anything else to plug? No. I mean, I think... I, I, I'm, I, am, I, have, I have nothing to promote. I am not a brand manager of myself um, that's of any value. And, uh, yeah, that's just where I'm at. I just, you, can, you can follow me. Uh, you can think about me. But I have nothing to plug. Well, I'll do yourselves a favor and search for Kevin's stuff and read it because it's always thoughtful and always interesting, and it always gives you a unique perspective on whatever subjects he's talking about. So do yourself a favor and do that. Um, as for me, my work is at the Washington Post. Uh, you can find it there. You can follow me on Twitter at Tim Bontemps. And I'd also like to thank Glenn Yoder in the Western States. Uh, Glenn Yoder is the sports digital editor at the Washington Post, Kevin. And he also is a musician. Uh, he, he provided the theme music for the podcast from one of his albums, which is cool. So um, thank you to, to Glenn for that. If you guys like the theme music and want to find some more stuff, you can listen to it at glennyodermusic.com. But, Kevin, thank you again for the time. really means a lot that you did this. I appreciate it. And thank you to everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.